and welcome back to The Broad Perspective, uh, the podcast where we try and uh, broaden our perspective, so to speak, on what makes a classic film and uh, talk about the things, uh, the kind of movies that that shaped us. Um, I'm your host, Megan Cruz, and today I am joined by two lovely guests to talk about two more uh, in our journey to talk about uh, all of the Best Picture nominees. Today, my guests are the lovely uh, Taylor Scriber, who is a PhD candidate in film at Northwestern University. And I'm also so lucky to be friends with her on TikTok, where her handle is it's Tay with three Y's.jpg. I just double checked, so I was like, is it three or is it four? Um, and also, we're joined again by the lovely Chelsea Garlock, who uh, earned earned a cinephile badge today. I'm so proud of you. You want to talk Thank about you. it, Chelsea? You want to tell us about it? <laughs> We're all doing our part. <laughs> yes, I, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, went to a movie theater at 10 in the morning to see American Fiction so we could talk about it today. Spoiler alert. Did you mention that we're talking about that? I don't know. Um, and I was almost alone until two older women who I like to think were sisters, you know, mm. like you and me, Megan, yeah. uh, were there. It's like I was there with you in spirit. really worked hard on their whispering, but, but failed a little bit as well. <laughs> been so there, been there completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think they were hoping to be alone in the theater yeah. and not and have to just whisper. ruined that for them. They were like, dang. Yeah. Chelsea, <laughs> yeah. that was so rude of you actually to intrude on their special time. I know, but you know, I needed breakfast and what better than popcorn and cherry Pepsi and some bunch of crunch. So listen, Greta Gerwig would be proud of you. She just, just talked about how great it is to see a movie at 10 a.m. So it really is. You have your whole, it is really great, especially when you ditch your kids with the husband. So, and then you just are by yourself. Yeah. No, I I love a morning movie. I honestly, Mm -hmm. it's like, I I also have a kid's movie. Oh my god, I love by myself Ooh. movies. Love a by myself movie. Ugh. I've only done one other by myself movie. Mm. I'm a little ashamed to say what it was. Well, now you have to. It, yeah. It was blended with Drew Barrymore <laughs> and <No. laughs> whoever else. Did you like yeah. it? Did you have a good time? Wait, if you had a good time, then it's not I mean, like to be fair, I was just waiting to pick someone up from the airport, and that's the one that fit into the show, the time to pick. In Sydney, my other sister, I was picking up from the airport, and I was pregnant, and it was hot out, and yeah, so I I think it was justifiable. Air conditioning. The movie, less justifiable. I mean, to be historical about film, that's why a lot of people went to see movies, because it was like the one place that had air conditioning in the summertime, and they were just like, come in and watch these movies, you don't have to be outside in the oppressive heat, like, that's tradition. Right? Truly. I mean, I love that. I mean, look at you, upholding and, cinema And one thing about tradition. me is I will watch really anything. Same. Same. People think, like, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore they have had a lot of really good collaborations. They so have like good chemistry. Yeah. Like it was worth taking the shot on, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I agree. I mean, we all are hoping for the next wedding singer. We just are oh all gonna be waiting a long time, I think. My personal fave is fifty first dates, honestly. Except oh, for the weird brown face that Yeah. Rob I always Graham. forget when I'm rewatching and then when it happens I'm like, ah oh no. <laughs> So that really does come out of a play. You're like, oh, this is so wholesome and great. And then it's like, oh, no. Mm-mm. If they just cut that out, it would be a great classic movie. But alas. For real. And why can't they? I mean, how about how about we get Hulu to recut Fifty First Dates? Oh, my God. And yeah. put it back up there as a new and movie. And I would watch it 50 you know? times in a row. <laughs> Rename I would watch it. it 50 times in a row. 
This is a callback to Chelsea being angry on a previous episode because I don't know if you saw that they Hulu recently took that Baz Luhrmann movie Australia and they released it as like a series. And I was like, "What is going?" I thought I was losing my mind. I was like, "Is this not Australia? What is what's going on?" I was so I was like, I've seen this before. I know I have. I was so, I was like, did I dream that up? Is this like a Bernstein Bear situation where I made that up in my brain? I was so, <laughs> thank you for the clarity on that because I never checked. I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that. Chelsea said like almost this exact same rant verbatim in a previous episode because she was like, what is this? I, could, I couldn't believe it. I was like, why are they doing that? I know Australia is long. Like it's a really long film, but why yeah. are they doing that? Why would they do something like that? It it genuinely, I mean, I guess maybe after the success, the baffling success of Elvis, they were like, people like Baz Luhrmann and, you know, people like Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman. No one really seemed to see this movie. All of those things are true, but people don't like Australia. No, and I they shouldn't really like Elvis, in my opinion, either. That was really shocking. I was like, what is this Elvis resurgence? Like, I was down for Priscilla. Like her yeah. getting to like kind of have a be in, incorporated into the conversation about his legacy. I love that. But why are we talking about Elvis? Dude, the Elvis thing, I that was honestly like one of my favorites was when Jacob Elordi was doing press and they asked him about his connection to Elvis and he was like, eh, you know, I liked the Elvis bit in Lilo and Stitch. In Lilo and Stitch, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how much education you should bring to that role. Austin exactly. Butler, relax, okay? Chill. You did a great job. He did a great job, but relax. He did, also. did. I did recently see that he he apparently officially made a statement that said he hired a dialect coach to help him get rid of him. Poor guy. <laughs> Poor guy. Like, just, bro. <laughs> just, <laughs> is it really that serious? <laughs> I mean, I this is honestly this uh, like before we get into the movies, which I don't even think I've said yet. Chelsea brought it up. Yes, obviously we're talking about American fiction and Killers of the Flower Moon today. But um, before we get into all of that, I'm going to go on like a tiny little biopics rant because I made a TikTok about it this week. Mm. And this is exactly one of the things that pisses me off about biopics. It's like this, like Austin Butler, like, you know, I get, he did a good job with the accent. I, I didn't like the movie, but I respected him getting at least the nom because, again, it was a good performance. Mm. But like the not being able to shake the accent, the Ana de Armas saying that she was haunted by Marilyn Monroe's ghost. Like, I'm like, this is just so exploitative and weird. I'm like, maybe just we could just chill a tiny bit, you know? I'm, you know, and I, I don't want to like speak for actors because, you know, I don't know how their craft really works. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know the ins and outs of it. And so like, I, there's a level of respect that I feel for that process that of like not understanding, but yeah. like... Maybe if that's happening, we take a step back for a second and we're like, I might be doing a little too much. <laughs> exactly. Like, literally, I, <laughs> who, well, who was the actor that said there was an actor that somebody, uh, somebody asked them about, about um, method acting. And yeah. he, they were like, why don't you just try acting? You know, <laughs> like, just yeah. try. Literally. Literally, the father from um, Secession said the same exact thing. He was like, I don't believe in method acting. Just do your job and go home. I was like, exactly. Natalie Portman, I feel like, just said something about method acting being something only a man can do because a mother could never be a method actor in front of her child or something. It's very privileged to be able to be a method actor, which I totally understand. It's not Daniel Day-Lewis's fault, but I do blame him. (laughs) 
and it's yeah and i love like daniel day lewis is so great but truly it's like maybe like daniel day lewis opened the door for people like jared leto which is like yeah we've gone gone too far and that wasn't (laughs) daniel's intention but like that is what the impact has been that is what the impact has been and he has to answer for that he has to answer. Yeah, that. exactly. Do like I honestly do keep hearing you guys mention men. So like is Natalie Portman right? Or are there women? No, it's all, it is very... pretty much all men. It is I can't a mostly think of a single... male phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I can't I've heard even of... really think off the top of my head. I've heard of, of like female method actress. I think I've heard of women saying that like they might st- try and stay in an accent. Like like yes. through for and even then it's not like throughout the entirety of the role, it's like maybe just like all day during shooting. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. like getting in and out of accent work, as we as Austin Butler knows, yeah. can be really hard. So. I've heard women say that like they've like isolated themselves like from the rest of the cast if they have a role mm-hmm. that kind of like is separate from them. Which yeah. like other like male actors do that too, but I have never really heard of a woman that's ultra famous like Meryl Streep mm-hmm. doesn't method act, Viola Davis yeah. doesn't method act, like no mm-hmm. Angela Bassett. You know, like they don't Margot Robbie. They don't do that. I don't, Mm-mm. I don't really understand it. It does, it, it does really, to, yeah. I feel like, fall into the category of just doing, doing too much. Like, we could just do a yeah. little bit less. <laughs> we could just do a little bit less. You could do a little less. You could do a little less. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I let's jump in because I don't know how you guys are feeling, which movie you guys want to start with. Um, but I love American Fiction and Killers of the Flower Moon. I think they're both incredible films. And I was kind of like, honestly, with both of them, I was kind of shocked with how much I was expecting to love Killers of the Flower Moon. I didn't know as much going into American Fiction. Like, I've never read the book. Have either have Taylor? I know Chelsea hasn't no, read the book. I've no offense, Chelsea. I've never read it. No. Thanks, okay. Megan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't read a lot. Okay. In my free time. All right. Trust me. As I have... job it is to read, it's overrated. Yeah. <laughs> I have just recently discovered the library, though. Do you know they just let you take books for free? No, I'm I kidding. But I also. I know you're joking, but I really do. Let me plug the library. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you don't have a library card. Go take yourself to your local library, get a library card. You can get online access to streaming services. You can get audio yes. books. You can get digital books. You can, you can get discounts to museums and other municipalities yep. and public yeah. works buildings. You can do a bunch of stuff at your local library, and the librarians are so nice and they're so kind. Go to your local library. Thank you so much, because I love the library, and I, I've never actually mentioned it on this podcast, but I, I, will, I will hype the library to everyone. Everyone. They have it's so too. important. They have DVDs. Yes. Yeah. No, I really am only half joking. I have a million children. And so I went to the library with my first and then I had a bunch more and I was like, okay, who has got the time? And then mm-hmm. I re- like, I forgot, like they have programs for kids. They have craft mm-hmm. kits that I can go and take my kids to get DVDs that I can put, you know, for them to have in the car or whatever to watch. And like, yeah, for, like books. I mean, I've been buying books for my children, like an idiot. Like, why am I doing that? You <laughs> no, know, like, like I could just go exactly, to the yeah. library. Yeah, I guess. No, <laughs> so like, it's good to have your own personal library at home of books that you've purchased or like that you've yeah. received from people. Like that's always good. But the live there's no there's no better place but the library. I love the library. Yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. so, so plug true. for the library was totally deserved, and I yes. am, I am a new convert, and maybe I'll pick up a book for myself. Maybe I'll pick up yeah. American fiction. Look at you! Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. The season. <laughs> The things, the things you can learn on this podcast, we're all, it's about self-improvement at the end of the day. <laughs> I do want to ask, I would love, Taylor, if you would give us just a few examples of some of the most formative films for you, because I think it would be great for people to kind of understand, like, 
what got you into this? Like the movies that made you interested in this, made you start studying this and inspired you to, to pursue this? That's a really good question. Um, I think it wasn't really movies at first. Um, my grandfather was a really, yeah, my grandfather was a really big TV person and he was, he the, he loved Star Trek. Like he had the DVD box sets and like the, and he watched the original run when he was younger and he just loves science fiction in general. So, you know, like 2001, a space odyssey and planet of the apes and like stuff like that. And there was this one movie from 1954 called them. Um, and it's about this town that gets, uh, ran out or uh, overran with radioactive giant ants. And it's it, it used to scare me so bad when I was little. Um, but it was like one of his favorite movies. And to this day, it's, it's one of my favorites as well. Um, but I would say just like his general love for science fiction, film and television was very formative for me. And then I think in my teen years, my mom and I would watch really, really bad horror films um, she was a work from home mom and so we would go on comcast and we would go to comcast on demand and we'd find the worst horror movies we could find and we would just <laughs> watch them and talk about how ridiculous they were and simultaneously my father was really into like prestige films so like the godfather um scarface he loved like a gangster film and so things like that but so then you, my own you probably grew up watching a lot of scorsese yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but in the meantime, I'm formulating my own kind of interests, and I was really interested in like '80s television or uh, films. So, like, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Oh and, hell yeah! And, and like, and like, just really bad movies like that. I just <laughs> love them. Um, and I was. What's your favorite I, like bad horror movie? I gotta know. Bad horror. There was this move. There was. There is this series called the dentist there are like three of them and it's about this dentist who has a psychotic break and he starts he starts mutilating and killing his patients oh my god um, in his practice and it is just so bad i don't watch horror (laughs) it's so good and it was like it was like and i had a huge fear of the dentist and so it was like a horrible horrible way for me to do things um but i to this day love that movie it's so ridiculous ridiculous it's like steve um, martin's character from little shop of horrors except an yes, entire series it's based it's on the that whole, <laughs> it's the whole thing it's the whole thing that's amazing um, oh my god but through films like that and through experiences like that it made film so approachable mm, yeah to me in a lot of ways that made it very fun because the people around me made it so fun i always wanted it to be fun and i'm always interested in just like the weird and like the not liked things so yeah i love that like sci-fi and horror were your entry points because i love sci-fi and horror so much and i also had a dad who was like really into i've shouted out my dad on this podcast so much for like he was like big into like westerns like we had to i just saw the other day the outlaw josie wales my came up and i was like oh loved westerns my he dad would be so heavy Lone Ranger yeah. with um, Chuck Norris he had that on all that and mash he loved those <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Well, 
both of these movies kind of had an impact on me where I was like kind of shocked at how much I love them because I, as much as I, I am a really big Scorsese fan, but I didn't know how much this film would impact me personally. Uh, just because there were so many other films coming out this year that I was really, ex- or last year, I should say, that I was really excited about. So I was like, yeah, I'm excited for Killers of the Moon, but we'll see how it goes. Also, like, our dad was an FBI agent, so I feel like I'm always kind of weary about mm. FBI stories because I'm, like, mm-hmm. kind of, oh, I've heard about it my whole life. I'm like, okay, I get yeah. it. Like, and I also am skeptical about people like Jan Hoover. But yeah, and when I went into American fiction, I was like, this is so much fun. But it's also, like, the commentary was incredible, but it also was, like, I was shocked at how funny it was. Like the jokes, mm. it has some good jokes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, where do you guys want to start? Mm, new cinephile's choice. Oh, my oh, choice? Yeah, okay, well then I, yeah. I saw American Fiction first. So uh, recent, most recently. So let's we'll talk about that. I saw that this morning. Fabulous. Amazing. So, uh, I love it. I, I was really interested for me specifically going into it, talk, thinking about the score, because we had talked about that on the episode when we talked about Barbie and Oppenheimer and the Oscar nominations had just come out. So I was thinking about the score. Oh, yeah. And, I definitely did have thoughts about that, thinking about how, to me, I told Megan, it sounded a little disjointed in a way that I think maybe was somewhat intentional because it was almost like storytelling. And so it felt very, um, like the, what's that movie? The Secret Life of Walter Mitty or that movie with, um, uh, that movie where uh, Will Ferrell is like, someone's telling a story about him. It reminded me of Straight that, where they're like, Yes, someone's oh, telling yeah, a story yeah, yeah. and there's music going on with that. And it's like, that's kind of what it felt like. And then in the end, and again, I don't know about spoilers on the podcast, but like in the end, when you kind of see it cuts as if he is telling the story, I thought maybe mm. this was more intentional than I thought it was. So yeah, to me, it just felt very, the music was so intentional that it almost felt not cohesive to me, but um, it was beautiful. I just, yeah, that's how I felt about it. So I was, I was specifically noticing that because we had talked about it, and I wanted to see if it was yeah. better than Pirates of the Caribbean, which yeah. is. Really- <laughs> I, I, I 100% agree, and um, I think first of all, I really so Thelonious Monk is um, also well, he was a very famous jazz pianist um, back in like the sixties and seventies. I only know this because my family knew him. Uh, like my great grandfather knew him. And so really? when I heard his name, I was, yeah, they were very close. Allegedly he was my grandmother's godfather. Um, wow. allegedly. Yeah. So when I, when I watched the movie and they said his name, I was like, ah, no way. Um, <laughs> but the disjointedness of the of the soundtrack makes sense when you listen to Thelonious Monk's music, because he was a very abstract jazz pianist. And and I thought that the parallels between his career and the career that we kind of see Thelonious go through in the movie were very interesting because Thelonious Monk, even though he was considered amongst his peers and people who knew him to be very brilliant and, and a very well-versed jazz musician, he was never really able to break into the mainstream. He was never able to have that like one hit or one album that had mainstream success. It always stayed within the jazz circuit, the jazz circle. And I found that parallel so interesting with Thelonious's character as we like watch him get this mainstream success, but not really because it's not really him, right? So like even, it's not under his name. And so we kind of, that parallel was very interesting. I I wonder if it was intentional. Um, That's mm -hmm. such a cool like meta commentary on behalf of the score. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I, I really do wonder if it's intentional. I would have to read some interviews by the director. Um, but that's what that's the connection I noticed that was just so fascinating. Um, and also, you know, Jeffrey Wright is just, he's so good at his job. 
Oh my God. Like, I his love performance, Jeffrey so much. It was so good. Another person who like probably doesn't method act, but like every role that he's in, he fits in seamless, seamlessly. Like he can do something like yeah. this. And then he does Batman and plays like a character. Yeah. Like I just thought he was so impressive. Um, and Sterling K. Brown as well. Like they were both so good. Oh my God. Sterling K. Brown. I, that that best supporting actor nom is so unbelievably deserved. Like Period. he just has an incredible presence. Like every mm-hmm. time he was on this, I wanted. That's one of the things about the movie where I was just like, I wanted more of him in it. Is like mm-hmm. he was just so magnetic. Um, yeah. what an incredible, like captivating performance. But I also love Jeffrey Wright. I first became obsessed with Jeffrey Wright because I was like an OG like Westworld girly, and oh. so. I love I loved Jeffrey Wright on Westworld. It's such another really like restrained role, but like one that mm-hmm. he he's able to do like really high highs and like really um com- like compelling quiet moments too. He's so great. I also really appreciated the way that they frame academia and the way that they like show us how the sausage is made in a sense. I feel like to people outside of it it seems like this really like prestigious and like you know up in the clouds sort of like institutional thing but getting to see just how ridiculous it is like when I was watching I was like yep that's exactly what happens like the opening scene with the student where she's like I don't feel like we should look at that word I was like I I literally had that conversation with a student like multiple students like wow they really got in one that's crazy it's like see I knew that you would have such a great perspective on this with your like being entrenched in academia right now. Like I, I'm so curious because it, it, it did it did seem like I think that it, there were a lot of parallels that I saw with like the movie like Tar uh, mm. in the way that like but but also Tar I feel like was intentionally sensationalizing like how mm. um, oppressive an instructor can be and this felt mm-hmm. like the opposite where it was like. Mm-hmm. Yes, academia is a place where we grow and learn and we all want to be respectful of each other. But also there comes a point when you're trying to protect people from just the actual reality, the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I do think that it's an experience that obviously I can't really speak to because I think that especially when you're in college, it, like high school is another thing where I feel like there there are a lot of texts that are taught to kids that can, can absolutely be traumatic and especially in places where like you're in a majority white classroom or whatever it can turn into something that's maybe unintentionally like not not a good or productive experience but when you're in higher level education I feel like you have to engage with all aspects of a text and sometimes I I, I feel like it's got to be important to address like the just the truth of the past but I would love for you to speak on that more because you do have that like real constant you're fully immersed in this world all the time right now Mm -hmm. you know that's a really that was very thoughtful thank you um it like the major issue that i have often with students is this fear of being wrong or saying the wrong thing out loud in front of a you know a live studio audience the rest of their peers because there is such like a knee-jerk reaction sometimes to it's about intent and tone like I have like you talked about like growing up in majority white classrooms that's I that's my experience and so you kind of learn to understand if someone's coming from a place of malice or if they're coming from a place of genuine misunderstanding and so at the beginning of all my classes that's what I say I was like there's nothing wrong with asking a question 
that is like genuinely coming from a place of curiosity and misunderstanding, but we're not here to antagonize each other through like hypothetical what ifs or whatever. And we're also, you're also not going to win any brownie points from me for like being, you know, you know, super like the, the student and the other one's like, I don't think we should be, I don't think we should have that word up there. And it's like, well, this is a course on African-American studies. So we're going to have to talk about this. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, I think, I think the, the movie does a really great job at showing just how like frustrating that process is. But I also don't think that Thelonious is in this to teach. And that's the other crux of the plot is that Thelonious wants to be, you know, an academic who writes, an academic that does research. He doesn't want to teach. Um, and you can tell he wants, he just wants the accolade. He doesn't care to teach anyone um, or mentor anyone or, or facilitate a pathway for anyone. And I think we also see that a lot in his interactions with Issa Rae's character in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I was, <laughs> I was in theater trying to relax a little bit during their interaction at the end. And I was like, he didn't read that book. He did not <laughs> read it. And I'm like, you got yourself all in this tissy. You didn't even read it. Yeah. That's wild. I, I found her character so fascinating because mm -hmm. I, I've, I'm obviously, I feel like I, I want to be really careful with any commentary or criticism that I offer of this film because obviously it's speaking for an experience that I, I could never understand. Um, and it, it was just so fascinating to me from an outs, from an outside perspective. And also like from someone who like has other like places, like, uh experiences of marginalization but it's not it obviously it's not like directly comparable so i try to relate to these things in the ways that i can understand them and i think about like the way that women have to exist in these spaces or queer people have to exist in these spaces but just like looking at the text the disdain that he seems yeah. to have for Issa ray's character and her book does seem to come from a place of like you know not not willing to engage and i i think that as an audience member, as a white audience member, no less, I was wondering, like, she Issa Rae's character seemed to have a great point, you know? She was like, I think that sometimes you have to meet an audience on their level. And mm -hmm. this is what white people are willing to engage with in terms of, like, the content that we're offering to them. So you might think it's beneath you, but it seems like this is something that I can do that not only affords me personal success, because I do think that that's a, a theme of the film too, is like what we're all willing to do to be successful with the sacrifices that we have to make. And sometimes those are moral sacrifices, but I, I didn't get the sense that Issa Rae actually was a sellout. It seemed to me that she was a, a person who was understanding the audience and maybe, maybe looking down on them a little bit is like white audiences who are looking to be exploitative of black experiences. But I do think genuinely the perception that I got from her character was that she really wanted people to understand and thought, this is the way that I can meet them where they're at right now. And maybe there's a future for that. Whereas Thelonious, it felt like he was just so resentful that people couldn't, and understandably so, resentful that people didn't want to accept him as the full person that he was and instead see him as a stereotype. But I, I really, it was a really enlightening kind of experience for me as someone who, again, is not going to experience these things personally. But I just, I, I found it to be really an interesting dichotomy. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I, I, one, I really loved the part where she says, 
well, it doesn't sound like you have a problem with me. It sounds like you have a problem with the white people, which is like so very poignant. And like, definitively, that is exactly what's happening here. <laughs> and, and rightly so based off the people who are surrounding him in that film, like they're exactly the people that he, you know, they're giving him all the reason, the ammunition to dislike them. But um, either way, I just felt like it was interesting that you're talking about her book and the that he didn't read it because also like we didn't read it and we don't actually know what's in it as the audience. We only have one excerpt and his perception of her that we're assuming that she might be placating like an audience that, you know, for monetary reasons or whatever. But the fact is, is that it could be a good, there could be elements of the book that are good or something. We don't actually know what's in it. I don't know the book American fiction. So I don't know if it even touches on some. It, I don't know how it's related to the film, so I can't say. But my, from my perspective as an, going in with no knowledge of this, I have no idea what Issa Rae's book is about. Um, but like Taylor was saying, uh, it seemed like Polonius had no interest in understanding what the book was about, just like he seemed to also have no interest in, and tech, I mean, normally I would say no responsibility in educating that girl in the beginning who chose to take that strong stance with a black man and he so rightly said, if I can get over it, I think you can. Um, but at the same time, he is an educator. And if he wanted to educate her on this subject in that context, he had every opportunity. But instead, we see her leaving. And so I just find that in both situations where, one, he's justified in, in his you know, frustration and not wanting to feel like he should have to convince this young girl um, that she's wrong, uh, but then here with a peer and a black woman who has the same background and experience as him, he also doesn't want to educate her, like himself or learn or try to understand where she's coming from. He's just very much focused on his, what he wants and his agenda and his perspective. And he's not willing to meet people in the middle, it seems like. Even with his brother yeah. as well, I feel like. Um, so, yeah. Agreed. I think that um, that conversation he has with his mother where um, he asked her if she knew that his father was having affairs behind her back. And she's like the last person in the family he asked this question to. Um, and he's the only one that didn't know. And um, she says that she stayed with him because he would have been lonelier without her. And that geniuses are often lonely people because they can't relate to others. And I thought about that in relation to just like Thelonious as a character, as a person, but also the very isolating experience it must be to be like a black man in higher academia and how it was probably just easier for him to just remain unidentifiable to others. Um, and I found that conversation with Issa so interesting because throughout the film, he constantly cast these aspersions that like, you are denigrating the race and you, and through this literature, you are creating this narrative about blackness and da 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 But blackness is not monolithic, right? There are black people who exist in these environments and who exist this way, and they deserve the same dignity and the narratives that we tell about them as Thelonious's characters in his own book. And that's, that's kind of what my dissertation is about. It's kind of trying to understand, like, where does this self-consciousness come from? And Issa Rae, like you said, um, Chelsea, like she says, is like, you have a problem with white people. You do not have a problem with me. Um, you have a problem with the sy systematic structures that make it so that we can only be one or the other. We can't interact with each other. 
Um, and I really like the framing of that scene because they're having this conversation and then that white lady comes in and she's like, what are we talking about? What's going on? Um, I, love those and right before that I love those scenes where black people are having this conversation and then the second white person comes to the screen, we stop talking about it because that's, it's like um, a microcosm of the real politics of blackness and that like, we don't like talking about our intra-community issues in mixed company. Because yeah. it's like, we can't even really have the conversation because it's like, if they, had, if they had presented it to her, she would have been like, well, we could all just get along. Like, it doesn't have to be either or. And it's like, you don't, this is a 500 level course. So we don't have time to take it back to the 101. Like, <laughs> it's just. It's- I was going to say immediately before that scene where like the last thing that woman had said was, oh, but I just feel like black voices really need to be heard right now. It's my, it might not even be the best book, but black voices need to be heard right now. <laughs> and they were, and they were both like on the other side of the table and the and the white people on the side just like I think it's just great that we listen to black people. I was like, this is exactly this yeah. is so like <laughs> I'm sure there were some people that watched it that thought it was a little heavy handed or whatever, but like that is exactly how that happens. That's exactly how this happens in those spaces. I also loved the conversation of the proctor calling Thelonious and being like. I'm sure you're the last to know about our diversity issue here at the Literary Award, and we would like to offer you a position. Like, the conversation eliminates all subtext. Yeah. um, And puts it all on Front Street in such, like, an artful, funny way. It's so, it's so good. I, uh, it was really, really, really fabulous. I think the way that they set it all up. I I found, I I was honestly, it felt so real like it it was it honestly it reminded me of a show like Arrested Development or something where the comedy feels absurd and extreme but only because you're like a fly on the wall in these situations because all of it felt extremely believable and extremely literal that entire that entire committee that was voting on the award the fact that they had you know the jaded uh the jaded angry uh, like white older writer and the fact that mm-hmm. even he was like oh well you know I actually I actually am on board with I this like it because they it was were gritty and like it was it was real it was raw like, oh. yeah and even many of them admitting that they didn't think it was well written but not caring mm-hmm. because you know they need to be performative and it's just so frustrating that of course, this is the way that white people would do this. You know, it's not mm-hmm. Thelonious's own work is never actually under consideration, but he gets to be on the committee because they're trying to, uh, you know, create a more mm-hmm. diverse message. A book that they know is going to be sensationalist and, you know, get picked up off of shelves gets rewarded because that's the way these white people choose to celebrate uh, and lift up black artists. And it's it, it all felt like taken from real life also, in a horrible like way myth- i think the mythology of stag r lee is what also like really sets it off for them because they're like he's a wanted fugitive like the <laughs> I, I took a course like my second year of graduate school and it was talking about like the artist and like what it means to like construct the the personality of an artist and how we have this expectation of as audiences to for them to do the most ridiculous things and us just be like that's fine like that's we were I don't we were talking about it before we started about method acting and why and how a lot of people just get away with method acting, men specifically. Um, <laughs> because people have this expectation of artistry where like 
artists are allowed to be weird and unwieldy and like cagey and like it's it's actually better if they have this like very mysterious persona it sells more copies and the publicist says that they're like it's it's great that he's a fugitive it's great he's from the streets it's great that he's like like his writing style is so simplistic and everything like that because like you said it's the expectation and the construction of blackness in their minds that is profitable like Thelonious's yeah. brand of blackness that's not a profitable brand of blackness. Even Issa Rae, I think she kind of folds herself into like a, a Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison type of literary figure that's like very poised and creates these, you know, quote unquote, poetic um, tableaus of blackness. Like there's these archetypes that black artistry has to fit into to be palatable to white audiences. And I think the movie does such a great job of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it felt, honestly, it was, I, I was amazed also at the way that it was able to balance tone. Like it really, there were moments that felt so heavy. And honestly, like one of the things that struck me really early on was the death of his sister, because <gasps> first of all, I I'm was, shocked. Was, I, was I did not expect that. Just, yeah. I was already just completely in love with her character. Uh, and I was like, what the hell? And it just, but it also, it, 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 it felt very like painful. You could feel the pain, but it also, the way that it was shot, the way that the story was told was still comical in a way that I feel like, like tragic comedy, dramedy is such a, it's such a beloved genre right now. And I felt like this, this film like really got, got it so well because every moment. The funny part. <laughs> I, just, I didn't find it funny, but I thought it's so sad. But okay. No, no, no. Her death was was absolutely horrible. But then how they like jump to the funeral and then like yeah, they're oh, trying that, to scatter the ashes and that and the white guy, the white guy being like, "Is that Bella? human remains? <laughs> you have a permit for that, girl." <laughs> It was like, that read was the crazy. fucking room, dude. Right. Yeah. Hello? You don't see, you see a bunch of people crying on the beach <laughs> with an urn? Mind your business. You walk right through them. You don't walk around. You don't give them a wide berth. You walk right through it. I, like, I and knew again, it was coming because I saw I saw a guy in the background. I was like, that wouldn't be an accident, same. right? But I was like, yeah. right, well, whatever. And then they keep going. And then the guy starts coming. I was like, okay, this isn't an accident. <laughs> but I was like, what is really walking through there. Yeah. And again, that totally feels like something that would not have happened if they were a white family. They're a part of an right. affluent community. You see it all the time in film and TV, like white people scattering the ashes in a place of meaning. And it just seems like that's not that's not how that interaction would have gone if they were no. white people in that community, and you know? To right. find out that they knew each other, too. Like, he knew <laughs> the guy's name. That's what was name. craziest to me. I was like, <laughs> if that had been a stranger, I could have, like, really, I could have let it rock a little bit. Like, you were a stranger, yeah. you don't know them, da 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 da, da. They didn't know him by first name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mind your business, Philip. No, yeah, for exactly. real. And that, that's what I mean, like, it, it I felt like the comedy was such a beautiful way to like kind of cut the tension of this heavily racially charged story. And I, 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 I like, I can only speak to the, I'm not sure if it was for a white audience's benefit or if it was to allow like, so that the film wasn't like, tr like exploitative trauma that it's, you know, trying to critique. Um, but it genuinely felt like it was a way to kind of say, 
we should all acknowledge how ridiculous this is, right? We should all mm-hmm. acknowledge that these systems are just not okay in any sense of the mm-hmm. word. And it's it's funny because it's so absurd in those moments, the way it's framed, but it's also like, again, it's speaking to such a true and real experience that isn't, isn't funny at all, you know? Mm-hmm. I think what the film really does well in accomplishing for its message is that all of the Black people in the film are very affluent, established professionals. Like Sterling K. Brown's character is a plastic surgeon. The sister's a doctor. Thelonious is a PhD. The um, Coraline was a pub- is a public defender. Like all of the Black people in it are in the same sort of contextualization. And so the conversation is somewhat limited to their experiences. And I think that it, it that's smart because I think confining it to that makes the the issue at hand, be, meaning like the, um, the, the representation of blackness easier to parse out. I think that if like there were black people of different economic situations, or occupational situations, it could have gotten really messy um, in the sense of like the, the story's politics. Um, so I think that was a really good choice in terms of the narrative. Yeah. And of course it's based off a book. Um, but I think that that was a really great choice because you can really see that dichotomy more. You can see what the social expectation and the cultural expectation are versus all of these people. Like why does Salonius have to write this book <laughs> called Pathology to be recognized? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. And then no, the, exactly. The scene where he's like, I want to change the title. I... Could not, but I could simultaneously. I could not believe, but I was also like, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, at the end Why of the not? day, they're like, well, the whole the whole promotional campaign is just about how sensational and you know uncultured this person is. So it's like, of course, they're going to be like, oh yeah, actually, you know what? We can make that work. Like it's yeah, yeah. So and in- it's so insane. And his 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 uh agent was also just such a hilarious chelsea texted right. me in the theater that joke about the, oh the gesture of when blowing when he was like of shooting oh himself. sorry your dad <laughs> i was like oh no that was one of the funniest jokes i have seen in a movie in a long no, time it was, i was like i, was like, I, I mean you? oh my god it was so quick too he was just like oh yeah never mind <laughs> like, oh never mind oh my god i'm so sorry I have a question. question. Yes. How do we feel about Adam Brody's character? Because I thought he was so funny. (laughs) I love, oh my God. First of all, Adam Brody, perfect casting. When I saw his name in the credits, I was like, I wonder who he's going to play. And then as soon as they said, there's a film producer who wants to meet you, I was like, like, Adam Brody's going to be baby. It's Adam Brody. It's Adam Brody. He plays skeevy. Yet likable, yet so oh. hateable. So I don't yeah. know how he strikes that balance. Every it must be who he is. It has to be like he <laughs> well, must I, be playing himself. I love. I just made a video today where I briefly mentioned the OC, and I absolutely okay. love that his career tra- trajectory was like lovable goofball nerd, and then it, he just went into like the worst white guy you've ever met, and that's you've his like met. whole career <laughs> after that. I love. I, I love it so much. The first time, I think, was Jennifer's body when I was like, oh, yes, 
he's really a star. Because <laughs> he's yes! like, he's unrecognizable! Who is that? <laughs> and then in I Ready or Not. Mm. Oh, oh my god, I loved him in that movie. I forgot yes. he was in that. I, I also that. haven't seen Jennifer's so Body, and now I want to watch it even more. M- Megan loves it. Chelsea, you've she's always never me to watch seen Jennifer's it. Body. Oh, no, I haven't gotta. seen it. It's so good. What? I know it's, it's so like one of Megan, it's like one of your favorite movies, right, Megan? Yes, like of all time. Yeah, I know. It's I know. I haven't seen it yet. We all. I'll watch it eventually. Megan, we all owe her an apology. Um, yes, Megan Fox. I'm yeah, sorry that absolutely. I was 13 well, and. I was holding on to internalized misogyny that way and I deeply apologize. Oh, same. I and I was older than 13 and I was yeah, still not. I was like, I'm so sorry for that. I take it all back. Yeah, it was Michael Bay feel... was the bad guy all along. It's... I don't feel like I did anything to Megan Fox. I went to see Transformers. So, I mean, I feel <laughs> I like she and I are good. But I was one of those girls that was like, mm, she thinks just because she's pretty that she can... <laughs> <laughs> Whole time she's yeah, being tortured on the set of Transformers by Michael Bay. Awful. Horrible yeah. asshole. Maybe I shouldn't have seen Transformers. Maybe that would have been the better for her. It was so actually. Good. I, I, I love the Transformers movies, even though I hate that man. I do hate him. Honestly, the first Transformers is like such a fun, like two thousands action so movie. Good. My brothers love really that movie. Good. They watched it basically every day for six months. I think I could quote every line with like eighty percent accuracy. Like that it. movie is so like violently misogynistic like mm. but still it's it's a good it's a good time it's really and it's fun. like it's, it's just really fun it's just you know you've got john Turturro playing like a goofy cop what am i supposed I to hate john that Turturro. come on i'm always if he's in it i'm down to watch it but i want to ask about the ending of american fiction because mm. i think that that it was such a it was such a wild ending and i love that it like i love that it it seemed like it was going to like the, the actual ending of the, the story uh, is ambiguous. But then I also love Chelsea texted me also about the plantation annihilation joke. I know. That was so, I love that. That was embedded in there for the people who know. And I I think most people know, but. (laughs) I, I honestly would have been happy. I'm, I'm happy about like the, the kind of like pseudo three ending um, like thing we get, but I would have been just as happy if it had actually ended there. Yeah. I, I would have been just as enthralled and just as happy with the movie. I would have been like, wow, actually the cut to black. Cause I don't want to know like... what happens. My second hand yeah. is going yeah. crazy right now. I just yeah. need to know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was the end for sure. I think that's what the point was, I guess, but like, yeah, I definitely thought it was. And then I did, I like I said in the beginning with the score. I do feel like then having it shift to this storytelling as if he was telling a story this whole time. I feel like that kind of made sense to me. Um, it was like to me, it put it together and and also kind of gives you. I don't know. Did you guys ever see that show, The Affair, on Showtime, where they had yes. each episode was from. It was okay. So one episode is from the husband's perspective. And then the next episode is almost like the same story, but from the wife's perspective or from the mistress's perspective. And it just shows you how different everyone's story is. So like she could, they'll be wearing completely different outfits or they'll, he'll be like drunk in one scene in her perspective, but in the la- in his episode, he was totally sober. And, you know, so it's just, and you never know what reality is. So kind of when, whenever I see like a storytelling, element to a movie you I then always think also 
it reminds me, this is just from that person's perspective. Like, so how so-and-so represented themselves, Issa Rae's character, what he thought of her, that's all just his perspective, mm-hmm. you know, because it's him telling this story. So I thought it was really interesting. And then it helped me. I also feel like it connected the music to me where it did. I didn't know about him being a jazz musician, but it did kind of to me like, oh, that's the music he wanted to put to this story. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of perspective of it. And I thought it was I also love the addition of Adri- um, Adrian Brody's character uh, because Adam of the Brody. Adam Brody. Yeah, uh, Adrian Brody's the pianist guy, right? Not the like he played yeah, the. Yeah. Anyway, he's a different actor. Um, yeah. So yeah, I like that we got to see him more, so that we could have those options. So I was happy it didn't cut to black. I like. I also liked the actual ending, in which him and the extra who's dressed as an enslaved person kind of have this moment of recognition with each other. I was oh my like, God. Yeah. 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 I was like, mm, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. And yeah, there's this really interesting, and I think I'll get more into it with killers of the flower moon. Also, like I found it's so interesting that they both bookended these film, their films, like with a retrospective of the story, like, like they're telling it in retrospect. Like that was very shocking to me with Killers of the Flower Moon. When I saw it, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And also kind of the conversation of genre that's occurring in both of these um, endings because Killers of the Flower Moon, they they conceptualize it as like a true crime radio show. And it's like, so this this qualifies as true crime, this like proxy genocide that these people were committing versus the different endings that are occurring in American fiction where like it could be a rom-com ending it could be a tragedy like a a drama ending it could be like a comedy like you know what I mean or suspense or some sort it's very interesting the ways in which the ending of a film can control or the ending of an instance can control the way that we conceptualize it as genre um I thought that was really really fascinating Yeah, when I realized that I wanted to pair these two movies up, because originally I wasn't going to pair these two together, I was shocked that it hadn't occurred to me before because the through line of both of these is like stories, like human stories about, they're, they're, they're at their core human stories, but both of them have this element of the the exploitation of telling human stories and especially the exploitation of people of color uh, and as like, as like a a product to consume uh, in, in, in our media. And I thought that it was such an interesting parallel that both of these movies kind of approach that theme of like, how do you even tell these kinds of stories without doing exactly the thing that you're trying to criticize, you know? Mm -hmm. And that you're right. That ending where, he's on the film set and he sees the guy dressed as the slave. It is such a moment where it's like, even though I'm doing this on my terms, even though I am finally getting recognition under my own name, even though I have the idea of success that I, you know, made for myself, how much of this is me, you know, pandering and putting, putting my story up through, through an exploitation lens for an audience that I didn't want or intend, you know? And I think, I think with Killers of the Flower Moon, especially, I think Scorsese is very self-conscious of his legacy as a filmmaker and the way that he has shaped his catalog to tell these human stories, as you said, but at the same time, 
I don't think he's been as thoughtful toward the exploitation arm of what it means to tell those stories the way he does tell them. And I think for this one in particular, it was really his way of mediating and meditating on, okay, what exactly is my legacy as a filmmaker, as a quote unquote auteur, and what are the consequences of that? And how can I move forward knowing that, that these are kind of the ramifications of the art that I make? Um, and there was an interview, I cannot remember who they interviewed. Um, I think it was the man who played Henry in Killers of the Flower Moon, but they were asking him how he felt about kind of the representation of um, the Osage in the film. And he's like, honestly, I think it could have been better. I think that our perspective could have been centered more. And I remember a lot of people, there being a, a, a reasonable amount of backlash toward what he said, people were like, well, what do you want? Like, how much more do you want? And I was like, it's a fair perspective to have because the narrative is kind of centered around De Niro and DiCaprio um, and, and the and the, and the wild things that they do to this community of people. And yeah. I think the way that Martin ends it is him really leaning into that self-consciousness and understanding that like he can't tell the end of the story, one, because it isn't the end of the Osage people. This is an ongoing um, sort of lived living story that settles in with the people that like these whose ancestors this is about but also whose perspective could he possibly frame this in in a way that is satisfying to all audiences he can't and so I think him outsourcing that to like this radio show perspective which is like a third party perspective was the best way that he could do it and I I personally think it pays off um yeah but, you know, other people, maybe not. No, I, I rewatched Killers of the Flower Moon this morning, actually, in preparation for this because I loved it. It's, like, in my top five of the mm-hmm. year. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. But I honestly, like, even watching it a second time just in my living room with my kid, you know, being loud next to me, I, I got, like, full body chills in that scene mm-hmm. again because especially when he walks up to the mic himself – and he reads Molly's obituary like verbatim as it appeared. It's such it's such a self-aware moment and not just for him, I think, but for the audience themselves, because we also have to realize like our complicity in things like this. And I love stories that challenge the viewer to kind of accept that while it can be a criticism of our social constructs, a lot of times, especially for like white audiences, like we even unintentionally a lot of the time tacitly uphold these systems in a lot of ways um even just by like seeing a movie you know like i'm not i'm not saying it's wrong to see a movie but Mm -hmm. of course like you know the kinds of films that get attention the kinds of films that audiences love i i compare killers of the flower moon to oppenheimer a lot because i do think that like they both kind of reflect the ways that that white audiences like to engage with stories like this. And I think the fact that Oppenheimer was the sensation that it was is kind of indicative of the fact that it, I'm not, like I said in the podcast about Oppenheimer, I'm not trying to have this conversation again. I'm not saying that Oppenheimer was like overtly glorifying of the figure, but I do think it, Mm -hmm. it allows for a little bit more leeway. Whereas I think the killers of the flower moon very much strongly head on addresses the ways that white people behave in these stories and the fact that they're not figures that are worthy of glorification in any way. Like I really do think that Scorsese has reached this point in his late career where he's really 
doing something effective. He's doing something super important. And I feel like he really is self-reflecting on his past work and making conscious choices. The fact that this original story was going to be based, like the book is, on the creation of the FBI and the the had Leonardo DiCaprio starring as the FBI agent coming in to save the day. And I do think it was like a reflection on his past work because I, he's actually a surprisingly diverse filmmaker. I know he gets mm-hmm. stereotyped as like a gangster movie director, but yeah. he's he's made so many different, yeah, incredible different kinds of stories. Yeah. But he really does like, he, it seems like what he really likes to do is tell stories about bad people. And he's made comments before about how he doesn't think it's the role of the the filmmaker to provide a moral stance for the audience to kind of attach itself to. But despite the fact that he said that, I do think that his most recent run up of films, like later in his career, he is really provide like it's very if you watch Wolf of Wall Street, it's clear that this man has no fucking respect for the Jordan Belfort character. And and shouldn't. Exactly. Like the when I rewatch that movie, it's astounding to me that there are film bros that like think that he's a. I watched like, that movie for the first time two years ago. I had been on protest for a very long time, and I was like, Fine. understandably, because of the reputation, it. whatever. Because <laughs> I was really big when I was in high school. Like all the boys in my grade were like, Wolf Wall Street, and I was like, okay, yeah, um, I'm not really interested, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, and so I finally watched it, and I was like, it's so good, and I hate this man. I yes, not Scorsese, but like this Jordan. I was like, I. This is such a good movie. I hate this dude. I hate exactly, exactly. And you, you look at like, I don't know. Like, I it just I I made a TikTok fairly recently where I was talking about like unlikable female characters versus unlikable male characters, and I referenced Jordan Belfort. And even in the comments, of course, there are a bunch of men who are like, "Yeah, well, Jordan Belfort's like actually likable. He might do bad things, but there's a difference between unlikable and doing bad things." And I was like, "What about this character is likable? He's like, there's nothing about him that's remotely." He's not like maybe he's got the barest minimum of like salesman charisma, but who likes salesmen? No, like, nobody. Who like, who <laughs> That's... Like, he's a used car salesman. They are notorious scuzzy people. Exactly. <laughs> like I just I was like, what are you talking about? Likeable. And yeah, I I thought the Killers of the Flower Moon was so incredible in that like Ernest is such a fantastically written character because he is just pathetic. You know, and I love like, like, I love that he loves Molly so much. And I love that that's real because I do think that like, that's something that humans as a whole have to wrestle with a little bit more is that even the people that we deem like like, whether or not you should poison your spouse. No, okay, that's not. Exactly. That's not. I was like, wow. Yeah, I don't know. Does he love Molly? I don't know. But um, I mean, I think I think he I really think he does love Molly. Does. I think he does, but I think he's like you said. I think he's pathetic, and I think he has no yeah. spine. And I think like exactly. he just does whatever anybody tells him to do. Well, ex- and I think that that honestly is like that's so much more prevalent in in relation to human atrocities than than we're comfortable admitting. I think Absolutely. that when we wrestle with the idea of evil. I think that generally a lot of people don't see themselves as evil and don't don't even con- consider the concept of evil. I think the the primary drive for a lot of people is like comfort and their mm-hmm. own self-interest. And so so many times people just 
fall into these things and are so, they're it's so easy for them to write it off on themselves because they're like, well, this is good for my family or mm-hmm. you know, if I didn't do it someone else would. And it's mm-hmm. it they it's not to diminish the truth of the evil of the axe because it is evil. Of course. But I th- I think that seeing someone like Ernest who I I read as someone who genuinely loves his wife and was so pathetic that he was able to convince himself that what his uncle was telling him was true, that the poison he was giving her wouldn't kill her. And he was too afraid and inept and just stupid to really accept the truth of the situation. He was just like, well, I can just lie to myself and say that it's not going to be bad. And I think that that's what a lot of human evil is. Um, And I also think the way that, Robert De Niro's character, Mr. Hale, talks about the Osage people. He speaks about them in a way that a lot of um, conquesting people speak about the people that they're conquering as if they're already dead. Like, I don't think it's a unique experience for anyone growing up in the American educational system that we talk about indigenous people as if they don't exist anymore. Yes. Talk about them as if they are already dead. Um, And I think that's that's true across the board when we think about atrocity. And to your point, I think that's why people are able to fall so easily into comfort and, com- and complicity because they're like, oh, well, this is our, it's already, it's already done. Like yeah. their, their, their fate is sealed. There's nothing we can do about that. And the fact of the matter is like with historical hindsight, we absolutely know that that's not true. We know that that's not yeah. true. Um, that there are, there are plenty of points in which intervention can be made at any given moment. And we chose not to do that, um, mostly because the rhetoric around it is that these people are already doomed. Um, especially it stood out to me that um, Mr. Haley talks a lot about like, there are sickly people and da da da. There was this one instance where he talks, where he's apologizing to someone about bringing the disease to them. I was like, okay, so you're sorry enough to apologize, but you're not sorry enough to leave. Yeah. And that, I was like, so the De Niro really did such a great job, I think, yeah. at embodying white paternalism. Yes. In the sense that he's like, I know what's good for y'all. I know what to do. You just leave it all to me and I'll foster this society. And we see that paternalism throughout the film, like, um, the, like the Osage people being considered incompetent. Like they can't handle their own monetary or financial affairs on their own. So they have these handlers who do it for them. And, 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 and something I really, really, really liked about Kills of the Flower Moon is that it shows that the violence that oppressed people face in a day-to-day is not the abject violence. It's not, you know, the lynchings or the, or the shootings or things like that. It is the day-to-day bureaucracy and and the medical racism that yes. will kill us in the end like that like the doctors they were scarier to me than robert de niro's character was and he's out here you know blowing up people's houses and having people assassinated but those doctors scared me because they're you're supposed to help these people and the yeah. fact that they were never prosecuted or persecuted yes. I mean, for the and that happens all the time that happens all the time and so the the way that Scorsese is able to take the mon- the mundanity of the day-to-day, the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the slow encroachment um, was so unsettling and so accurate. And I think that so many people do not. And that's also how the complicity is allowed to um, perpetuate itself because like people don't 
understand just how interwoven these processes are. They only think about the quote unquote isolated incidences of violence, which is why I thought it was also interesting that Scorsese incorporated the Tulsa massacre as kind of like, because there are no time cards in the movie, which I thought was an interesting choice. He does it by events. And so we know we're in 1921 because of the Tulsa massacre. And the the conversation around that is so interesting because after Bill and Rita are essentially assassinated, one of the women in um, Ernest's house is like, it's just like Tulsa. And I was like, so this is a very, I thought that was interesting. It's like, you're self-conscious enough as a white person to know that you exist in a community of indigenous people that is inherently targeted by virtue of indigenous people living there. So you know there are people who covet what these people have and would come here and do that, but you're not scared enough to leave because you want to be the people who is able to conquer the Osage and move in and get there. It's very interesting the way that yeah. he frames it all, I think. Yeah, no, I loved, I I mean, I the Tulsa Race Massacre, or the, yeah, Tulsa, I'm making sure I'm not saying because in the movie they call it the race riots. The Tulsa, the Tulsa, yeah, they call it race riots. Yeah, which is how it was, which was how it was reported for so long. Which it was just, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this community of black the people, of course, mm-hmm. of course, it couldn't last very long because again, black people are not civilized like us, you know. And I, I, I the, the. That, those events in Tulsa, I first learned about through the series Watchmen on HBO a while ago. Mm. And I remember when that happened, there was a big conversation because, again, this is a historical thing that's not really taught in American schools. Um, just like this, you know, the, the Osage people being murdered. And and you would think, you know, especially considering the, the historical precedent that this plays in the creation of the FBI, that this would be a much bigger deal that American mm. historians would want to say, like a World War II kind of situation, like, oh, we beat the Nazis. Like, we we stood up for the Native Americans and we created the FBI so that we could solve this. But it, there's so much bad in that story that even that isn't something that they can salvage. Um, I love what you said earlier about Robert De Niro's character because I also, I, I was kind of in the camp of he, like, snuck in to the Best Supporting Actor category. And I mm-hmm. still do think that he doesn't stand a chance of winning and he's been nominated nine okay. times. I would rather yeah. see some new blood in there. But that being said, on this second watch, I was like, his performance is so good and so insidious with that paternal nature where it's like the kind of harm that you can only do when you've convinced someone that you know better than them. Like the offhanded mm-hmm. moments when he hands um, he hands uh, Molly's sister, I can't remember what her name is, Anna. He hands Anna a flask at her sister's mm-hmm. funeral. He just hands it to her, you know, and the history of addiction in native communities because white people saying, just, just have a drink, just take just a, drink. a drink. And this idea of them getting white people coming in and saying, we know better than you. We have comforts. Take this, do that to the point where they're debilitating these people by taking on this role of protector. And it's so insidious and horrible and destructive in a way where they can still put a smile on their face and still say, I'm a good Christian. I've taken care of you. And it's, God, it's, it's horrifying to watch. I don't want to belittle his nomination or his acting as that you guys have praised, but I will say <laughs> I strongly felt very much reminded of his role in Meet the Parents. <laughs> so I feel oh like <laughs> it's seriously Please. like I'm not even joking. I feel like they're the same character 
uh, just different fonts, you know, like, now, now I have to go watch that movie. I've been playing it for so long. I have to go back and watch it now. Wow. He's got this whole I, I, life behind the scenes. He's just trying to protect his daughter, but he's doing all this shady stuff. I mean, I don't know if you were I supposed to. I actually do I mean, see I it. Honestly, <laughs> you might have Watch it again with that filter. I'm telling you, it's... <laughs> It's, it's, it's the that same character. <laughs> I, but anyway, I actually, I actually kind of love that. I think he, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm just saying, I don't think he deserves to win. I'm not saying he didn't do a great job. Maybe he just did more than he should have for Meet the Parents. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that, there's that. That might be it. Maybe he put a little too much prestige in that performance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe he maybe he was snubbed for that role. Yeah. <laughs> oh that's, when, that's the award he should have got. But, uh, no, I think, I don't know how much I was supposed to know because I do feel like there were some gaps in my education on this subject matter. I don't know if it was the, uh, various, like, I didn't just go to the American school system. So like, I don't know how much they teach there about it, but cause we moved around a lot, but okay, good. So I always wonder, I'm like, is this a new thing? (laughs) Okay. So it's not just me, but yeah, so I wasn't super educated on this, um, I will say I barely knew anything about it. And so I didn't really know what to expect going in. I turned the movie on three and a half hours, three and a half hours. I'm, I'm like, you know, Megan knows I have a nine o'clock cutoff for movies and I, that's assuming they're two hours long. This was, <laughs> we need to start bringing back intermission because, which I wanted to bring up. Yes. So Megan and I grew up like overseas some, for some years. And it reminded me so much. I'm so glad you brought this up, Taylor, because we went to see Lord of the Rings movies in yes. the Netherlands mm-hmm. and they had intermissions for all of those movies. As and even should. when they didn't, they had bathrooms at the bottom of the theater where you go into the bathroom and it's playing the sound of the film. <gasps> Elite Listen, I, viewing experience. I think that about those theaters. Genius. I think mm-hmm. about those theaters every fucking day of my life because not only was seeing not only was seeing the lord of the rings in theaters like truly a life-changing experience like i am obsessed you can't exactly see it on my screen right now but i'm obs- i have lord of the rings memorabilia everywhere i love those movies they were so formative to me but those theaters in particular with th- th- in you don't even have to leave the theater that you're in the bathrooms are right in the bottom with right the at the bottom of the screen in. it yeah. was like the most incredible in g and also the all theaters in europe have been doing since the early 2000s when we lived there. They've always had assigned seating where you you get your seat, you pick your seat. Now AMC and does I that. And I love that. I don't care if I have to die it's, on the hill. I love assigned seating. No, I don't care. If it's so has to good. Say. It's it's yeah. per- that's the only way we need to do it. And they've right. always sold alcohol too. So it's like oh, I do and, miss. Oh, mm-hmm. oh my god! They also will play an ice cream commercial, and then yes. someone comes into the theater and says, "Who wants to buy ice cream?" And it's mm-hmm. like. I do actually. Thank you. <laughs> and the thing, is, the thing is, they can do it because I went to one of my best friend's little sister's birthday like years ago. We went and saw, she had a movie theater birthday. It was Wreck It Ralph 2 themed. It was so cute. That's adorable. But they do intermissions for the kids. There's like a oh, yeah. kids' theater in this movie theater, and it has like a play set and everything like that. And like halfway through the movie, they're like, all right, 15 minutes of play for the kids. And the kids just like run around, get the energy out, everything. That was like, I would like that. Yeah, that's no, genius. exactly. Well, and so I, I started I, it. I didn't. Oh, sorry. No, finish your thought. I was gonna say I started it thinking three and a half hours, but I couldn't afford to take an intermission because I'm starting this at 
you know, 9 p.m. or something. I'm like already past my bedtime by the time it's done. So I had to power through. My husband's asleep next to me the entire time. I'm just like, cool, I guess I'm watching this alone. And, but I was shocked. I didn't feel like it was gratuitous by the end of it. I didn't feel like there was too much, like things they could, like Oppenheimer. I feel like we could have cut down a little. No, you know, as I told Megan. Yeah, I feel like this, but I do feel like this was, it was good. I, I didn't yeah. feel by the end of it. Oh my god, this movie's going on forever. Not Irishman. Not definitely not the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, definitely needed, definitely needed every minute of it, every single minute. But that does not mean that we don't need intermission. Well, and yeah, I, 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 I would have liked love, an intermission. Someone said that the Irishman should be cut into a miniseries, and I totally Agreed. appreciate that idea. Agreed. But I do think that Let Hulu on it. I'm yes, telling you, exactly. <laughs> this would be yeah. their their thing now. Just recutting movies. This <laughs> miniseries. No, I I fully agree. I think that Scorsese. That's the thing is he really does have a diverse filmography. Um, I don't mean like diverse in terms of representation, but diverse in terms of like mm-hmm. um, the kinds okay. of films that he's making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing about a Scorsese movie is nine times, like nine times out of 10, even more than nine times out of 10, it's, it's going to be cut in such a way. The story is going to be told in such a way where you are, you are in no matter what. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why I knew going into this movie that I was going to be a fan, because even if the subject matter isn't something that grabs me and huge props to Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor who's been with Scorsese, like for the long she haul, killed it. She killed there it. are so many she women in editing. Up. And I honestly think, I think that the best filmmakers, you look at people like uh, Scorsese, even someone like George Lucas, who for the longest time was working with his own wife. uh, 100%. Because I think when when you're a filmmaker that stands out, it's because your film is able to emotionally connect with people. And I think that the women who are doing the editing understand how to cut a story together with the emotional beats. That's not to say that men can't be emotional. But I do, I just think that, I think, uh, yeah, they certainly are. But but I think that it's it's such a it's such an incredible um, testament to editors as a job that being able to to put a story together and a three and a half hour story that never mm-hmm. feels like it's dragging because this movie is yeah. long. It's but long. genuinely it's very long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I didn't really... go to bed for a long time. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm I also want to. I'm tired. I really, <laughs> really want to be real. I really want to highlight. That's why I started watching it the moment I woke up on like a Thursday because I didn't have work. I was like, I had breakfast, made a coffee. It was like 9 a.m. I was like, let's get it popping. Um, but I would, I really want to talk about Lily. Um, I was just, you were like reading my mind. I love I, it. I, because I just feel like. I was very bitter and angry and mad when she got her nomination and everyone was like, well, all she really did was like stand there and look stoic. I was like, if you guys do what? not stand Who there, said that? There were oh so many people yes. on Twitter, Chelsea, that were yes. like, I don't think she deserved it. And I was like, if you don't understand the intricacy of what she's doing in this performance, I don't know what to tell you. There is one scene in particular where I knew she was going to eat it up. She is the first, it's like one of the, it's like one of the two times, the first one or the second time that her and Ernest are meeting and she's leaving the church and she's having a conversation with the priest and he's like, I'm so sorry to hear. We don't even really see her until like a little bit after you can hear their dialogue. She's like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like our prayers are with her. Da, 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 da. And she's like, thank you. And you see like this very, um, like, I guess her face, she's very, um, nice like she just she has a very nice face like 
She's very genial with him. She's very polite, well-mannered. And the second he turns away, the mask drops immediately. I was like, do you know how in tune with a character you have to be to understand that that is how she would feel in that moment in time and to convey that on the screen? I knew automatically that she had probably been to this church a bajillion times before and asked for help and had not received it and knew it was a lost cause, but she couldn't not try. I was like, there's so much here that we are learning about her in a five second um, clip on the screen. And she does that the whole movie no well it's interesting robert de niro's character at one point says something about and i remembered it because i remembered it as a note for myself about how the osage people don't feel like speak and it's not an opportunity for you to spill fill all the silences and i was like remember that remember that in just everyday life um (laughs) but like that's what (laughs) that's what she's doing they're not She's not speaking all the time. She has a presence, though, when she's... I mean, I don't think she's ever just standing there. She always has, like, a presence. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to it. People are stupid. I can't believe I genuinely think that as an actor, restraint is something that is so important. And it's interesting because when we talk about, like, Oscar or award-winning performances... It tends to be the showy performances. It tends to be Mm. the big, loud, like I'm thinking of like Marriage Story and Adam Driver Mm. screaming, you know, like. Every day I wish you were dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Such a crazy thing to say. To this day, I can't get over it. That's such a crazy thing to say to (laughs) It it is such a (laughs) fucked up thing to say. Why would you say that? Even if you're I really feel like. Just this child like too. needs to be posted of, of Taylor just screaming every day. I wish you were dead at Megan. It needs to be <laughs> every day. I know, God, and you're that's your kid's mom. Like it's like Jesus. Right. Christ, dude. <laughs> like, Maybe that's a you awesome. problem, guy. Right. <laughs> but like Please. that kind of like powerful quiet, I feel like is is mm-hmm. so hard to do. And I think a lot about like the interviews that Lily Gladstone has given too, and about the fact that like, it's so fascinating to me that she got this role because of Kelly Reidart's uh, certain women where Mm. she's, it's like an, it's like a story that's like about these women. And it's almost like an anthology in the the movie. Cause it's like, kind of like just these quiet stories about these lonely women that live in this kind of isolated place. And Scorsese said that her performance was like so restrained, but she had that like magnetic presence and that's how he knew she'd be perfect for Molly. And I think about the fact that, you know, Lily Reinhardt, Lily um, Gladstone got that role because she worked with uh, Kelly. Am I saying her name right? Reichardt, Reichardt, Reichardt. I think I'm saying it's Reichardt. Um, But because she'd worked with Kelly Reichardt on uh, First Cow and it was a tiny role that she had. and just the fact that any any per, any director that seems to work with Lily seems to understand immediately that she's something special, and I, she I, it, it, she absolutely is. Like she it's, is. it's she is just so. This this film is so moving, and the the things that she does with the quietness is so impressive. And the interviews that she's given about how you know her career, she was about to give up acting before this, and she's mm-hmm. spoken a little bit about being a little bit starstruck and like trying to dance toe to toe with these people, like from day one, like going from being someone who's relatively unknown to working across Leonardo DiCaprio. 
And that blows my mind even more because I'm like, imagine, imagine you're like, imagine you're like about to give up acting because you haven't really had a lot of success. And then all of a sudden you're on set with, with one of the most famous celebrated actors actors in the world. And it's your job to say nothing and seem more powerful and in control than him in every scene. And you fucking do it. Like I, I can't even imagine. Like you're, you're she's single time. She's sitting across from this dude who she's undoubtedly watched in some formative performance. And she's mm-hmm. just even even if inside she's terrified, on the outside, yeah, she's yeah. she has got him in the palm of her hand in every fucking scene. I'm just like, God damn. And the and the silences make the the moments of high emotion for Molly that much better like i think about the scene where she's finding her older sister's body um in the creek and oh my god yeah just the way that her cries are even muted um probably in the way that she would really like to you know um vocalize her grief yeah her the the way that she uses her body you know, like she can barely stand up and like, it just felt so viscerally real. Yes. Um, I was just like, this, she, she's a genius. She's a genius. You would never, I think the only performance that I can really think of off the top of my head that matches it was, is when Viola Davis and Doubt with Meryl Streep. Um, yes. She, oh my God. Like, what a that, good callback. The whole time I was watching it, I was like, Oh, she's in her Viola bag right now. She really is. <laughs> she's using she's using every inch and minute and second of screen time. Yeah, every every inch of it. And she's give and she's and like you said, she's toe to toe with De Niro, with DiCaprio, with mm-hmm. Jesse, with who? Ugh, I fucking love Jesse Plemons. Oh my god. Oh my god, he's so <laughs> wonderful. He's such he's a so- when he showed up. I was like, oh, the man in the hat. It's him. <laughs> yes. Is that the Friday Night no, Lights I knew guy? he was in it, but I didn't know. I was like, when is the Jesse going to oh, yeah. see him? You know, Jesse Kevin, Chelsea Kirsten Dunst's husband? Friday Night yeah. Lights. What a, what a, yes, what a, what a, what a duo. <laughs> I, I know. They're so, they're, they're so, so wonderful. Weird and cool. They're so weird and cool. Wait, I just saw um, him in something else, too, besides Friday Night Lights. I saw him in... Um, that ma- oh, it's HBO so Max funny that you are a- referencing Jesse Plemons from Friday Night Lights of all things. Well, I love <laughs> That's him what I'm Friday here for. Night Lights. He's so good. <laughs> Hello. He was good even then. I was like, yeah. no, hold on. I kind of had a crush Breaking on Bad. I didn't go lie. Taylor is the PhD film person and I'm the, I will reference weird, obscure, not obscure, but like, you know, maybe <laughs> oh, not I'm commonly not talked about. In- also. <laughs> Friday Night Lights was, was really good. It was a really good like TV drama. Yeah. For teams? Like, yeah, it was yes. classic. Basically, yes. anyone listening to this episode should go back and watch The O.C. and Friday Night Lights, meet the parents. <laughs> yeah. Hope you I've got the running notes. list for you. Don't worry. <laughs> right? Listen, Friday Night Lights and The O.C. produce stars, okay? For <laughs> fucking and, sure. And it's, and it's undeniable. It's just like Skins, UK version. Yes! Nothing but stars. Nothing but no. stars. I will say also, like... Lily's performance is so, so beautiful. And I genuinely, I genuinely think that it is the only performance that I think really competes with it this year is Sandra Hiller's from Anatomy of a Fall. Um, I love Emma Stone. I love, Mm -hmm. love Poor Things. But I genuinely think that those two performances had both the restraint and also the the power in equal measure. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And I, but I honestly think that like as much, I love Sandra Holler. And for a long time, I was thinking that she was my number one. But after rewatching Killers of the Flower Moon, no, I really do think that think nobody's good. doing it like Lily. Nobody's doing I it like Lily. I haven't seen, I, I don't think really any of the other roles for the women that are up for, have I, Megan, do you know any of the women that are up for best actress? I don't think I've seen any of them. I doubt it. Movies. I think you've seen poor things, right? No, I haven't. Cause it's only, it was only in theaters. Oh. And again, it's not mm. easy. Um, but, um, but I would say I I would I was curious if she, if Lily is it Gladstone, yeah, mm-hmm. um, was the favorite because she she was amazing and I also based she off of the movies I've seen for Best Picture I feel like of the ones I've seen this is the one I would pick. So I don't know what the favorite yeah. is for that. Yeah, hundred percent. I do also think I've I've thought about this. I went through like a lot of Lily's uh, filmography and I really do think that like that brief little moment where she and Ernest are like falling in love she's Mm. she makes me fall in love with her every time she's on screen and I fucking need this woman in all of the romance movies because she's the most charming endearing just effortlessly lovable person I've seen on screen and I don't know how long she's gorgeous she's so so beautiful I was looking at her I was like her skin is no, literally. Please. I don't know how. I mean, what's so pretty. Her, she's like on. literally like dying, and I'm like, you're so no, pretty. Gorgeous. <laughs> you're gorgeous. But to your point, and and it's been said many times now for many months, many moons, many years, the rom com renaissance must yes. happen. Yes. Everyone in Hollywood wants it. Everyone who watches movies wants it. It costs nothing to make them. It costs $20, $20 million to make like a, an extravagant rom-com. You do not Even need that, $100 million. People are going crazy for anyone but you. And let's, let, I haven't seen it yet, but let's be but real. I'm not okay? really interested. And I'm like, that's not the peak of rom-com. Yeah. Rom-com can be so no. much better. Yeah, well, that's not who I want. That, the the advertising for that movie was ridiculous. And Gorgeous. even even that, people are so desperate for rom-coms that they're like, yeah, give it give it to us. Like we We're can do better. In very uncertain times, and people want to believe that love is still real. Yes, yeah. we no, want to. What was the um the hashtag like? Not my president. About that rom com, I feel hashtag not my rom com. That's not for me. That's <laughs> right. This has been so wonderful. Thank you guys so much. This is such a great conversation. Um, and I love these movies, and I'm so happy that we got the chance to talk about them. Uh, again, Taylor uh, is on TikTok as uh, it's Tay.jpg with three Ys. Uh, and she's, I mean, I good luck with your. What, what's the next? What do you do with? Do you have to like? Do you um, like? Do I'm, you like a thesis or? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting my dissertation, so that'll mm-hmm. be the next two years of my life. <sighs> Wow. Man, so, that's incredible. Yeah. I'll I probably chronicle it on TikTok at some point, but it's at the very early stages right now. So, yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's amazing. I, I I love it. Thank you, thank you guys both for coming on. Yeah, it was. This was a really great conversation. It was so nice finally meeting you. Um, and yeah, nice meeting you as well, Kelsey. Nice to meet you. Yeah, we've been mutuals for like I don't know a while, a while now. For like, a hot like, minute. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always nice. I've, it's, this has been such a nice way to like connect with people that I haven't gotten a chance to like really talk to yet, but who I obviously respect and love so much. Cause like your content is so awesome. And like, I, yeah, I, I look forward, I'll be following along. I'll be, fo- no matter if you're documenting your, uh, your dissertation or just whatever you do after the fact, like I, I've met so many people through this that are like, have actual, like very high level academic achievements in film. And I just think it's so incredible and important. 
and wonderful. I love it. So, uh, yeah. I love (laughs) that. I think your content is amazing. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Well, next week we are back with another uh, two Best Picture nominees to talk about uh, more. Thank you so much, Taylor and Chelsea, for this conversation. And if you are enjoying The Broad Perspective, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We always love and appreciate if you want to rate us on uh, Spotify or Apple or leave us a review whatever, uh, or follow. I I appreciate and love it all. Uh, You guys are the best. We will see you next week. Uh, Thank you so much.